This is 1988 Tops, where every card has a story to tell. Your hosts are David McKellis and Matt Kuzma. Let's play ball. Welcome back to 1988 Tops. David, what's our card for this week? Our card this week is card number 657, Gary Reedus, outfielder for the Chicago White Sox. Okay, and why are we talking about Gary today? A new listener, Jamie, at Jamie the Korean on Twitter, told us that he is listening to the podcast in order. He said recently he is up to Steve Sachs, so sometime in the next two years he will get up to Gary Reedus. Maybe he'll listen to this one because this is his request. Jamie is a Reds fan and also told me he was a bat boy for the Mets AAA team in the 1980s, so I'm sure that he got to interact with a bunch of the main characters of the show that we've talked about thus far. But Jamie's a Reds fan, and he asked if we had done a Gary Reedus episode yet. We have not. Part of the impetus behind this is that Gary Reedus had one of the greatest minor league seasons in the history of baseball. Just an outrageous season at rookie ball. And I think of Gary as a White Sox player, even though he was only there for one and a half seasons. We don't have a Sabre bio, but we do have some fun diversions into Italian 60s rock, maybe some mascot chat. And, you know, we're we're basically just we're doing our own research here. That's how I prefer it. I don't like to trust the science when it comes to these things, David. But let's go to the front of 657. And we have Gary Reedus in a very close-up shot. This is kind of disturbingly close. Just, like, back up. What? Why no action shot? You get really just a really close-in look of his face. A little bit of a 5 o'clock shadow happening. You've got the sun kind of at an awkward angle, so it just highlights the tip of his nose and his mouth. Very strange look here. It's a very, yeah, extreme close-up. Got a plain gray T-shirt. You can see his red warm-up jersey. Not a lot to see here of interest, except in the background, this is at the old Comiskey Park. There's some blurry apparition behind him. (laughs) Is this Our Lady of Guadalupe back there? What's happening? (laughs) It is very hard to tell. At first glance, I thought that it was just a very, very large man in profile who was wearing the same color warm-up jersey as Gary's wearing here. Looks like the very faint bit of a hat on top. And so maybe it was just a very, very large Chicago White Sox player, someone who was maybe double the size of a typical athlete. But that seemed unlikely. So now here in our notes, David, you've put a link to some of the mascots that had joined the White Sox franchise. And maybe this is one of these characters who's very, very blurry in the background has kind of this pinkish red. I can't tell if it's the one who's a, a bargain basement snuffleupagus or if it is this orange monstrosity, this orange monstrosity goofball character on the right here that has bright orange hair and a kind of a mustard yellow shag carpeting body. These are Ribby and Rhubarb. Call them by their names, Matt. (laughs) Ribby and Rhubarb are... I mean, Ribby is a good name for a mascot. That is a good name for a baseball mascot. But what is he? I mean, what is that? That is a Sesame Street reject. He get kicked off the block, and he's looking for a new place to go. He had a... Like a lot of people 
in that time period, he probably had a cousin who had moved to Chicago and he could sleep on his floor, sleep on the couch. That's kind of what he looks like. His eyes are all messed up. What's going on here? All right. So these are Ribby and Rhubarb. These are the White Sox mascots of my youth. They were unceremoniously dismissed in 1988. (laughs) Maybe they were doing something inappropriate back there that got them kicked out. Ribby and Rhubarb came about at the dawn of the Jerry Reinsdorf era. Nothing but success was on its way when Jerry Reinsdorf and his cohort bought the team. They wanted a rebrand and they wanted a new mascot. So this is early 80s, late 70s, early 80s. Mascots are all the rage. The Philly Fanatic, the San Diego Chicken are going gangbusters. Reinsdorf hired the design company that designed the Philly Fanatic, and they designed two, two mascots, which, you know, unless we're talking about MPB teams, most teams in Major League Baseball only have one mascot. Some have none. But Reinsdorf wanted two. We're going to go big. So he has this purple anteater, Ribby, and rhubarb is an orange thing, more of a humanoid. But unfortunately, the White Sox fans did not take kindly to these monstrosities. <laughs> and they already had a mascot that people liked, and it was just a guy who dressed as a clown. We may have also discussed Andy the Clown on the Bobby Thigpen episode when we were joined by Matt Flesh, director of Last Comiskey. But Andy the Clown was just a guy who dressed like a clown and did goofy things in the stadium. He also did not get paid. His payment was they let him come to the games and do his clown stuff. And people actually liked him. He was kind of silly and uh, a little bit irreverent. But they got these new monsters. So they pay somebody to design these new monsters. The number one mascot design firm in the nation, which, Matt, that's a future topic for our our business model we need to start designing mascots and they actually kicked andy the clown out so then you have fans who don't know these new mascots they knew this guy who dressed like a clown and did it for free just to come into the game and entertain people the local news started a campaign to call the white Sox front office and encourage them to reverse the decision and bring andy the clown back and eventually they did but as i said Nobody knew what Ribby and Rhubarb were, and everyone hated them. I was told (laughs) when they got rid of Ribby and Rhubarb that it was because they scared kids. (laughs) Around this time that this card picture was taken, I was a Cub Scout, and we walked on the field. I remember Ribby and Rhubarb being there. I don't think anyone was scared of them, but also like nobody wanted to take pictures with them. They were just there. They weren't beloved fan favorites. In an interview, Dan Lemonnière, who played Rhubarb before moving on to be Benny the Bull. I'm not sure if this is the Benny the Bull who was uh, involved in the drug trade, allegedly. I don't think so. I think that this is an older version of Benny the Bull. He described getting pelted with beer and insults and getting knocked unconscious with a bat during an appearance at a Little League game. That is a tough life. Yeah, these are not cool looking. So this is the big thing, and it's hard to define cool. But the Philly Fanatic, what makes the Fanatic so great is the fact that the giant snout is like a mouth. And the actor playing the Fanatic was very physical. Because of how big his belly was, he could get in people's space. He was wild and obnoxious. And Philadelphia is a wild and obnoxious city, and they really took to that. We discussed the Philly Fanatic, I think, at length in the Tommy Lasorda episode. 
the fanatic in a way was playing a very important dramatic role on behalf of the crowd and the audience to go after the enemy to go after the opponent on the field and mock them and everything else and it was just it's a very cathartic experience to have a hero out there dressed in green fur you know taking on the enemy in a way that the real players can't and so it was it's very nice it's very emotional kind of payoff from that rhubarb and ribby just look very sad and i think the the boggle-eyed rhubarb man he's not my hero and ribby what is he doing is his snout is so small he can't really doing anything with it he can't unless he's gonna whip somebody with it but he's really only a threat to ants and there's two of them so you have dispersed the fun it really just goes to show how important character development is in mascot creation and these guys their backstory just there's nothing to it it's just a real shame ribby and rhubarb they just it started off on the wrong foot 1988 they're retired according to the original philly fanatic dave raymond reinsdorf said that the fans weren't ready for it the fans at the time were quote really difficult tough nitty and gritty (laughs) type of fans and they just weren't ready for it they knew andy the clown these guys come in, they, they boot Andy the Clown like a bunch of jerks. And since then, the White Sox have had some failed attempts. They had Waldo the White Sox Wolf, who was around for a couple years. And then in 2002, they introduced this giant green thing named Southpaw. And Southpaw is still the mascot. There is a change.org petition to bring back Ribby and Rhubarb. It has 37 signatures. The groundswell of support. Yeah, that's, that's 37 too many. Folks, if you have any ideas for who the White Sox should have as their new mascot, we are always taking suggestions about mascot activity in the major leagues and in all baseball leagues. You can send them to us at our email, which is 1988topspodcast at gmail.com. Please put mascot search in the subject. So now that we've got that mystery sorted, that's definitely rhubarb back there or ribby. I don't even remember which one is which now. Let's go to the back of 657, and we have Gary Reedus, outfielder, height 6'1", 185, right-handed batter and thrower, drafted in the 15th round by the Reds in 1978, born November 1st, 1956 in Tanner, Alabama, with a home in Decatur, Alabama. Chris Berman would call him Gary Reedus, a bedtime story. He is not related to Romulus or Remus, legendary founders of Rome, who were raised by wolves, featured on the A.S. Roma badge. He is also not related to Norman Reedus, Daryl from The Walking Dead, and not a member of the Teenage Dirtbag band, Weedus. Also no relation to Wilson Frog Reedus, who was a Negro League player for 16 years and also manager of the Chicago American Giants. Frog Reedus hit 304 and was an all-star twice. He played most of his best years with the St. Louis Stars and had a 149 OPS plus for them in eight seasons. He passed away in 1979 in a car accident at the age of 74. Gary Reedus was born in Tanner, Alabama, an unincorporated area of about 5,500 people in northern Alabama. This area has a bad history of tornadoes. In 1974, two F5 tornadoes killed 50 people. And in 2011, another F5 hit. This one killed 72 people in the county, and it was the deadliest tornado in Alabama history. 
another famous person from Tanner, Alabama is Rocky Roberts. And Rocky Roberts was a singer in the 1960s. He was initially in the Navy. While on shore leave in Europe, he won a singing contest and decided to stay in Europe after his time in the military was up, and he became a star. He had a song called Stasera Mibuto, slang in Italian for Tonight I'll Do It, and this song rules. This song came out in the mid-60s and sold millions of copies. They also made a movie of the same name, and Rocky made an appearance in that movie. He made an appearance in a few movies, uh, often as a singer in the background of a 60s Italian movie, but he might be best known as the singer of the theme from the 1966 spaghetti western Django, and that song was later repurposed as the theme for Django Unchained. Roberts was known for signature dark sunglasses, and he really became a legend in music in Italy and uh, passed away in Rome at the age of 64 in the year 2005. Gary Reedus went to Tanner High School, which is a K-12 through school. Another professional athlete, Richard Langford, who played briefly in the NFL for Kansas City, went to Tanner High. While at Tanner, Gary was All-State in baseball, football, and basketball. He's offered scholarships to play football, just an outstanding athlete, but he decided to attend community college and play baseball at Calhoun Community College. In his sophomore season, he hit 390 and was a junior college all-region team. After that season, the Red Sox picked him in the 17th round, but Gary wanted to either finish his degree or get a big bonus, and the Red Sox only offered him $6,000, so that wasn't enough to get him to sign. He went to the Cape Cod League and was an all-star the next year. And after that good summer and the draft, he transferred to Athens State University and was even better there, hitting 415, stealing 30 bases, and driving in 29. He finished his college degree and was named a NAIA All-American. And scouts were watching. He had a great year. He saw a bunch of guys he played with in Cape Cod League get picked in the first 10 rounds, but he was disappointed. He fell all the way to the 15th round and was selected by the Reds. The previous year, he had a $6,000 offer from the Red Sox. The Reds came in with a $2,000 offer. He told them he could make that much money staying home and working over the summer. So you have an upset, disappointed Gary Reedus who just felt unappreciated, but his mother pulled him aside and talked to him. And she told him, all you ever wanted to do is play ball. Just go play. The Reds raised their offer to $3,000. Gary realized he actually couldn't make that much money staying back home in the summer. <laughs> so he signs, and the Reds send him to Billings, Montana. Now, normally we zip through the minor league records of most of our players. But this first stop is maybe the coolest part of Gary's career because we have an immediate fun fact that Gary led the Pioneer League with a 462 average in 1978. This is outrageous. Two weeks ago, we discussed Danny Tartable, and we went to RedsMinorLeagues.com. We talked about the best Reds minor league season of the 1980s with Danny Tartable. And this week, we have Gary with the best minor league season of the 1970s. 
this is at rookie ball. So we do need to take into consideration Gary was 21 years old and they sent him to rookie ball. A lot of these guys are recently signed from the Dominican or 18 years old, drafted out of high school, just getting their first taste of life away from home. Well, Gary just ate that up. And also this Billings team was outstanding. They went 50 and 18. As a team, they hit 304. Future major leaguer Skeeter Barnes was also on the team, along with Nick Asaski and Tom Lawless, who we have previously discussed in their own episodes. And the Pioneer League was a good offensive league. Because of those younger pitchers, you get some rough pitching. And so there's it's a good offensive league, small ballparks, but nothing really compared to this. Gary is one of the older players on the team. He was used to being away from home, but this is outrageous. He said, you've heard stories about Michael Jordan when he said he was shooting and the basket looked huge. Well, when I was swinging, there were very few pitchers that I thought could get me out. He played in every game that season, hit 500 in the month of June, 449 in August. And near the end of the season, he was actually pushing for a 500 average, hitting 585 over his last 10 games. On baseball reference, it says he finished at 463, although our math here has it as 462.45, so a generous round up. But nine doubles, six triples, and 17 home runs with a 787 slugging and added 62 walks. So he had an on-base percentage of 559. That's a 1,346 OPS and stole 42 bases. So when he got on base, he also was a threat to steal. This is like no season I think we've ever seen before. This is similar to Sean Dunstan's high school stats. The only thing similar is some of the Negro League stats where you see averages into the 450s in maybe incomplete statistical seasons. And really, if you look back in history, there's only one season that's better, and we'll get to that a little bit later. Skeeter Barnes said Reedus was built like a cornerback combined with a sprinter, and Skeeter was in the minors for a while. He didn't see someone with that combination of power and speed until Eric Davis came along. Mike Witt, who would go on to a good major league career, was fresh out of high school, and he said if you saw him in 1978, you would have thought it was the second coming of Ricky Henderson. This team also made uh, maybe a tactical economic error. They didn't draw very well, and so they had this deal where if somebody hits a home run, they do something called the foamer. (laughs) And that means you get 15 minutes of free beer for every home run, and because nobody's coming to the games, they're not losing anything. But then people started showing up because you have this guy hitting 500, and he's hitting home runs, So then they started giving away the beer. Then they started shortening the length of time to just a few minutes or just the first few people in line. And when Reedus was at the plate, people would get ready to run to the beer stand. And eventually they just canceled the promotion altogether rather than get into a 10-cent beer night situation. But Gary gave some people a good time for 15 minutes. That sounds weird. You got to think it's a marketing dream, but... It does have that negative side effect of when he comes to the plate, no one's actually watching. They're all leaving their seats, getting ready to get in line for free beer. As amazing as that season was, Gary is realistic about it. He said he overmatched high school kids. He also said it was only 68 games. It would be different if somebody did it for a 140-game season. 
He said, it didn't get me any closer to the big leagues any quicker. I ended up in A-ball the next year anyways. He also made 28 errors as a second baseman. So he did need some more time to develop on the defensive side of things. At A-ball the next year, he started at Greensboro and played well. Not like the Gary Reedus playing against children level that he did the year before. But he had a good year, 278 16 homers, 41 steals in 83 games, which was an, an on-base percentage of 392. That earned him a call-up to double-A. In 36 games, he hit 174, kind of dropped him back to earth. He also got dropped back to A-ball at Tampa for 1980. And he was back on track, hitting 301, 16 homers, 9 triples, 50 steals, splitting time between the outfield and third base. And after that brief delay in single A, he was back at double A in 1981, where his average dropped to 250. But he hit 20 homers, stole 48 bases, drove in 75, and walked 82 times, playing outfield and first base. So he's developing multiple positions he can play. His batting average is pretty decent, but he still has power and speed. He finally gets up to triple A. He's 25, so it did take four plus years for him to get there. Longer than you would have expected after that amazing 1978 season at Rookie Ball. At AAA, he had his best season since that year at Rookie Ball. Playing full-time in the outfield, he hit 333 with a 604 slugging percentage. He had an OPS over 1, 24 homers, 54 steals, added 29 doubles, 9 triples, drives in 93, earns a September call-up. He played in 20 games with the Reds and hit 217. When we have important Reds moments, like Gary Reedus's first game, you know we got to look for Grandma Minnie Lee's Reds scorebook. We go to grandmascorebook.com. If you look up Gary Reedus, she has a scorecard for Gary Reedus's first hit, his first home run, and his first game. In those first 20 games, he stole 11 bases. So he's showing that great speed, not getting on base as much as he had in the minors, but an okay start. Heading into 1983, he was the opening day starter in left field. Starting strong, going 8 for 25 with two homers and four steals in his first six games. Then he was sidelined by a hamstring injury for a few weeks. Came back and hit two home runs on his first game back. This is notable because in his first 27 games, he had five home runs and 15 stolen bases. And he is the fastest to that mark in baseball history. In 1986, Barry Bonds did this in 40 games, which is the second fastest. And this season, Ellie De La Cruz tied that mark of 40 games. But 27 games to hit five home runs and 15 stolen bases is a fantastic start to a career. Aside from the injuries, which is something that Gary would struggle with throughout his career, he's got some power, he's got speed, and he just needs to stay healthy and looks like he's going to have a decent career. He was able to stay relatively healthy the rest of the season, playing 125 games. And this was an under 500 Reds team, and Reedus was one of the better players. His average was a little bit low, hit 247, but thanks to 71 walks, good power, he had a 117 OPS+. plus. So he had 17 home runs, 9 triples, also stole 39 bases, and scored 90 runs. And we have a Rookie of the Year contender. In the National League, he was 5th in triples, 7th in steals, ninth in runs scored. All of those were first among National League rookies. But Daryl Strawberry hit 26 home runs that year and won the Rookie of the Year for the National League. Gary finished 4th. 
their war values were very similar, but both of them were well below Bill Doran and pitcher Craig McMurtry. Either way, this is a good start to his Reds career. 1984, he was a little less consistent, and the Reds were less consistent too. Of the first 121 games the Reds played, Gary played in 91 of them, starting 78. He had 41 steals, hitting 266 with seven home runs, but the Reds' record was 50 and 71. They fired their manager and thought they found the solution from within their ranks. Well, they traded Tom Lawless, former rookie league teammate and friend of Gary Reedus, for the future hit king, Pete Rose. So Rose comes in after that trade to become player manager. And Reedus said that one of the first things that Rose did was put him on the bench. And he told him that Cesar Cedeno is going to be playing left field. Gary, you're going to be backup. Cedeno had been playing more at first base. But this move allows the manager, Pete Rose, to split time at first with Tony Perez. And Reedus would have a bad relationship with Rose after that. Rose would make comments to him. Reedus would be walking out of the dugout to hit. And Pete Rose would tell him that he was the major league leader in pop-ups and flyouts. Reedus said, I guess he was trying to motivate me. To me, he was showing he he had no confidence in me. When your manager doesn't have confidence in you, it's tough to go out and play well. And so after Rose comes in, Reedus only got 16 more starts to close out the season, and it left a bad taste in Gary's mouth. In 1985, Rose had a lot of options in the outfield. He had Nick Kosaski and Gary Reedus in left field, Eddie Milner in center, and Dave Parker playing right field. Eric Davis was arriving on the scene in 1984 and was back in 1985. Now, we know from the Nick Kosaski episode that he was an infielder and later would be a first baseman, but Pete Rose had himself playing first base, and he was trying to break the hit record, which he did in September of that year. So this is a great victory for him, and people in Cincinnati were all very happy. But the person who's left out and feeling pretty miffed about the whole thing is Gary Reedus. He only started 59 games in 1985, played in another 42 as the pinch hitter, pinch runner. He was frustrated, publicly criticized Rose, which you know is going to go very well. And in October, he said Rose should bench himself. It's interesting to look back on this and see you have a guy chasing a personal record who also controls the lineup. And that's one thing if the team is winning 70 games, but this team won 89 games and finished only five and a half back of the Dodgers. It's questionable whether Pete Rose was making the decisions in the best interest of the team, making the playoffs, going to a World Series, or in the best interest of Pete Rose getting to the hits record. Gary Reedus publicly criticized him, and this is after Rose broke the record. So the record's broken. Now you're just chasing the Dodgers down. You should be trying to win games. Gary Rita said all he can do is hit singles. He thinks he's helping the club hitting 265, but we'd have more speed and more power without him and more production. In the news media, Reedus wasn't even saying this to say, put me in the game. He was saying, move Nick Asaski to first base and start Eric Davis in left field. So he wasn't even saying, put me in left field. He's saying, put this young guy who we know what he's going to do in left. You know, meanwhile, Nick Asaski is mad about this. He wants to play first base and demanded a trade. Rose moved him to the outfield where he wasn't comfortable as punishment. And Pete Rose is essentially a replacement level player at that point with a 99 OPS plus. 
And instead of Nick Asaski's power at first base and Eric Davis getting more time in left field, you got a player in his 40s instead who should be retired player manager taking up space instead. A quote from Eric Davis, I think we'd have a little bit more production because I have the capability to hit some home runs and steal some bases. Maybe the understatement of the 20th century. The Reds finished five and a half games back of the Dodgers with those 89 wins. Not sure that the changes would have narrowed the gap, but both Asaski and Davis were more valuable players than Rose on the season and would show in the future that they were nearing their peaks and Rose was clearly on the decline. But Rose was there to break that record. Whether or not they would have gotten five more wins, unclear. But Rita said that he could make that criticism public because he expected to get traded anyways. And he was right. On December 11th, 1985, he was traded with reliever Tom Hume to Philadelphia for John Denny and young pitcher Jeff Gray. Hume had giant glasses and was good for the Phillies in 1986, then bad in 1987, released and re-signed with the Reds and was out of baseball by the end of 1987, and then would go on to spend a decade as the Reds' bullpen coach. John Denny was the 1983 Cy Young winner, but had some arm problems, and 1986 was his last year. So not a blockbuster trade in any way. Yeah, Jeff Gray has a sad story as well. He would pitch five games for the Reds, come back with the Red Sox, and was really good in 1991, but then had a constricted blood vessel in his brain that made him paralyzed. And it was thought that it might be a stroke as he had had a stroke previously, but this ended up forcing him to retire in 1994 without ever making it back to the big leagues. So a sad story for Jeff Gray. Gary Reedus was 29 at this point, He would end up going on to play nine more seasons and was happy to be free of Pete Rose. When the Phillies played their first series with Cincinnati that year, he said, I have nothing to say to him. I'm sure he has nothing to say to me. Do I even respect Pete Rose? That's hard to say. Well, he was pretty good in 1986. He did have surgery to remove some bone chips in his elbow. He played in 90 games with a 247 average, 11 home runs, 25 stolen bases, and an OPS plus of 110. And after that season, we have a This Way to the Clubhouse. That Gary was traded by the Phillies to the White Sox in exchange for pitcher Joe Cowley, March 26, 1987. Joe Cowley has another strange story. Joe Cowley's last win in 1986 was a no-hitter for the White Sox. It wasn't a great no-hitter. He walked seven guys, gave up a run, but it still counts as a no-hitter. Jim Fergosi said he had great stuff tonight when he got it over the plate. But Joe Cowley also isn't in this set. Even though he had been traded, Gary Reedus is in the set. Joe Cowley is not. And that's because Joe Cowley had one of the worst stat lines I've ever seen in 1987. The Phillies needed an extra pitcher. They had injuries to Kevin Gross, Don Carmen, and Shane Raleigh. So Cowley's going to go right into the starting lineup. He goes 0-4 with an ERA over 15 in five starts. And he's the only player in Major League history to never win another game in the big leagues after throwing a no-hitter. That's incredible. So Gary Reedus had a down year too, but definitely not that bad. This White Sox team was a 77-85 and team, and Reedus was fine in the most playing time of his career. He played in 130 games that season, had 554 plate appearances, both of those career highs. 
He hit only 236 and had an OPS plus of 89. But the line looks okay because he had 12 home runs and a career-high 52 steals, which was good for third in the American League. However, in 1988, he lost his starting spot in left field to Dan Pasqua. He was sometimes used as a center fielder, but wasn't a starter. He started only 66 of the team's 121 games through mid-August. He was hitting okay, 263 with six home runs and 26 steals. But the White Sox had some open spaces that they needed to fill. They had lost first baseman Greg Walker to a seizure that was discussed in his episode, and they also had a 40-year-old Carlton Fisk behind the plate and Ron Karkovice, who couldn't really hit. Fisk had some injury issues, and so they end up trading Gary Redis for a power-hitting Rambo lookalike who could play first base and catcher. Coming from the City of Champions, we're talking about Mike Diaz. And Mike Diaz was was bad for the White Sox and then left for (laughs) Japan after one season. So Gary joins the Pirates. He didn't hit great the first season. He had only 197 in 30 games. And the next four seasons, he was the Pirates' backup first baseman and outfielder, 1989 being his best season for the Pirates. The Pirates were under 500, but this was the year where the core of their playoff teams were coming together with Bonds, Benia, and Van Slyke in the outfield, Doug Drabeck. And then Gary Redis, being a utility player who could sub in in many different places. He played 98 games in 1989, 72 of them at first base, hitting 283, six homers, seven triples, and 25 stolen bases. It's a 142 OPS plus, the best of his career. But then in late July, he was hit in the face by a fastball thrown by the Dodgers' Tim Cruz. And two days later, the imprint of the stitches were still visible on his cheek. That's a bad hit. He ended up in the hospital and went on the DL for a couple weeks to heal the cut. His brain was scanned, no vision issues or brain issues. This is an odd incident because Gary was at the plate and the Pirates were leading. They were up, I think, five or six runs. The runner on base stole two bases. According to some of the Pirates, the Dodgers pitcher Tim Cruz thought that that was showing him up because you're going to win. What are you doing stealing these bases? And some of the Pirates thought that he was throwing at Gary Redis. He ends up hitting him in the face. Gary misses two weeks, and it's a really scary incident. He has to be carted off the field, taken to the hospital. He would have a lot of injuries during his time in Pittsburgh, which would prevent him from playing any more than 98 games in any of his seasons there. After he returned... In late August of 1989, the Pirates visited Cincinnati to play the first game after Pete Rose was banned from baseball. Sweet, sweet revenge. Gary hits for the cycle that game, and Grandma Minnie Lee has the play-by-play in her scorebook. In the top of the second, she has that there's a single to third base off Rick Mahler. Top of the third, three-run home run off Rick Mahler driving in Bobby Bonilla and Barry Bonds. Top of the fifth, a double off of our old friend Tim Burtzis. And at the top of the seventh, he does the most difficult for most players of the cycle activities and hit a triple again off of Tim Burtzis, this time driving in Barry Bonds. The Pirates won the game 12-3. to In 1990, the team won 95 games, which was a 21-game improvement from the previous year. And Gary was decent playing 96 games that season. He had a 247 average, but his on-base percentage was about 100 points higher. He had an OPS plus of 112. 
and makes the playoffs for the first time in his career, getting a pinch hit in his first at bat in game one. He stole second base, then scored on an Andy Vance-like ground rule double, and that was the deciding run in a 4-3 game. He ends up going one for seven the rest of the series as the Pirates fell to the Reds. 1991, his personal line was basically a repeat of 1990, 246, seven homers. He again played in the playoffs, but went only three for 19 in a loss to Atlanta. All three of those hits were singles. 1992, the third of those back-to-back-to-back NLCS appearances for the Pirates. Gary missed time with multiple injuries. He only played in three games between May 20th and July 2nd. He had an okay season, but the Pirates again go to play against Atlanta in the NLCS, and Redis did play a significant role for the Bucks. He started at first base in games 2, 3, 5, and 6, and also went 0 for 1 in game 4 as a pinch hitter. In the series, he had Pittsburgh's best average going 7 for 16, a 438 average, scoring four runs, driving in three, had a triple and four doubles, all of those hits and runs came in victories. Really heroic performance. Thank you, Gary Reedus. In Game 7 against righty John Smoltz, Jim Leland left Reedus on the bench and started lefty Orlando Merced instead, who went 0-3. for 3. Atlanta would erase a 2-0 deficit in the ninth inning. You're going to have to go back to the Andy Van Slyke episode to hear more of that because I will not be replaying that. So thanks, Gary Reedus. After that NLCS performance, along with some other key members of that Pirates team, Gary's contract is up. He became a free agent and signed with Texas. At this point, he's 36, getting up there in age. He was pretty good in 1993, but injuries kept him to only 77 games. He did hit 288 with six home runs. By this point, his speed is diminished. He only stole four bases. And in 1994, early in the year, he pulled a hamstring He came back in July for three games and then was done for the year, playing only 18 games. He retired after that season. So closing the book on Gary Reedus, 13 seasons in the major leagues, batting average of 252, 90 home runs, 51 triples, and 322 stolen bases. He had an OPS plus of 107. He was in the top 10 of stolen bases four times in his career and had a steal percentage for his career of 79.51% which is 85th overall in baseball history. What about in retirement? Gary and his wife, Minnie, had four kids. Three of them are listed on his 1987 Tops card in a fun fact. He had three daughters, Lakeisha, Manisha, and Nikosha, and then he had a son, Gary II. Gary spent six years coaching at Calhoun Community College, where he had started his college career from 1996 to 2001. He then was an outfield instructor in the Pirates and Astros system, and then he spent some time in semi-retirement while Gary II was playing college basketball. Gary played at University of South Alabama and then played overseas. In 2022, he joined LSU's women's basketball coaching staff as an assistant and in his first season helped them win the national title. He was credited as the secret weapon of this coaching staff and helped them with a lot of recruits This year also helped them get transfer Haley Van Lith and Anisha Morrow, who are coming into that LSU team, and Gary plays a huge part in that. Maybe he'll get another head coaching gig at some point in the near future. After Gary II's playing basketball career was over, Gary Sr. spent a lot of time golfing and hanging out with his eight grandkids, but then he was offered a chance to coach at Tanner High School, his alma mater, 
and he coached them in the 2017 season. But the next season, he had an opportunity to get back into the professional game. And he took a job with the Montgomery Biscuits and served as a coach there until 2021. In his time in Montgomery, Gary was able to stay close to home where he still lives in Decatur, Alabama. He's still a local hero and is in the Limestone County Sports Hall of Fame. All right, so we have Gary Redis. We have a the front of this card that really wasn't much to it. And I remember Gary Redis from his time in the Pirates, but didn't really remember much about it. I just remembered that it was a just kind of had a vague positive memory about him being a pinch hitter or, you know, being a utility guy. But now that we've looked at him a little bit more, what do we think? Gary Redis was a great athlete, a speedster who could also play first base and slotted in there for the Pirates when Sid Bream was out. And he was an on-base percentage guy before that was valued as highly as it is now. And when you have that kind of speed and a little bit of power, I think Gary Redis would be more valued today for his skills if he was healthy, would get more playing time than he did in the 80s. He had more power than your typical 50 steel guy, but injuries and some manager decisions kept him out of full-time status. And also the way that his career progressed in the minor leagues was odd. Nowadays, if you have a guy who's hitting 460, there's no way that he would have still been playing at rookie league. He would have been moved up to A or double A. And a lot of guys now out of college would have been starting at double A. So his career moved in a way that by the time he got to the pros, he's 25 years old. He missed out on a lot of playing time younger. Still for his career, he had some impressive stats. If you look at the runs from base running on StatHead, there's 118 players with career 30-plus runs from base running. Gary is 67th. He's right near Mookie Betts and Devon White, fast guys who had longer and more games played in their careers. And his 39-R base running came in the ninth fewest games of anyone on that list. So he's giving a lot of base running value in a very small number of games. He had a long career, but he probably should have played more and was a victim of the time that he played in. And at, a, at that time, batting average was more important than it is now. Now we look more at on-base percentage. In a stat head search of players with 300-plus steals, there's 169 guys on that list. Gary had the 12th lowest career batting average at 252. But because of his walks and his decent power, he had an OPS plus of 107, which is right in the middle of that list. So he's not Ty Cobb or something, but he's a solid baseball player and perhaps unappreciated by the stats of the 1980s. One stat that I think we can all appreciate is a 462 or 463, depending on what decimal place you're rounding at, batting average that he put up in Billings, Montana. His bat from that season is in Cooperstown. Gary's never been to Cooperstown to visit his bat, but the Baseball Hall of Fame and Minor League Baseball call this the record for the highest single-season batting average in the history of organized baseball. Interestingly, the Limestone County Sports Hall of Fame says it's the second-highest batting average ever. I did a stat head search just looking through to find something higher because I knew that there would be. Josh Gibson, in 1943, hit 466 for the Homestead Grays in the Negro Leagues. So not a bad list to be on if the only person ever in the history of organized baseball with a higher batting average is Josh Gibson. But that season in 1978, this was a high offense league, but Gary was the best hitter by 94 points. The second best hitter in the league was his teammate Skeeter Barnes, who hit 368. 
Yes, there were younger players, but there were also great players in this league. Among the people who he outperformed, you have Ryan Sandberg, Julio Franco, George Bell, Rob Deere, Tom Bernanski, Steve Sachs, Candy Maldonado, guys who would go on to all-star careers, and Gary outperformed all of them that season. As of 2013, Gary had never gone back to Billings, but he heard that there was a promotion, and he heard there were bobbleheads, and he called up the team and he said, do y'all have any bobbleheads? And they said, well, we may have a couple left. What's your name and address? And he said, this is Gary Reedus. And they said, wait, what? <laughs> and he said, y'all had a bobblehead night and you didn't tell me. They sent him a bunch of bobbleheads. Recently, while he was coaching with the Montgomery Biscuits, they honored him by giving away shirts with 462 printed across the shirt. Gary said this is a record that he doesn't think will ever be broken. While he's realistic about how important this record is, he just said the way that players swing for the home runs today is probably never going to happen. And I think Gary Reed has had what I remember as a, a modest career. This one moment and this one season are amazing. But also in looking back, he was a much better player than I think a lot of folks give him credit for. And I think he gets lost in the shuffle. Yeah, that season was amazing. I think it was very interesting to see how he handled everything that had to do with Pete Rose coming in as a player manager and took a lot of courage, I think, you got to say, to speak his mind the way he did. So a really interesting story. Thank you very much for that, David. And thank you to you at home. If you have a soft spot in your heart for a clown named Andy, we'd love to hear all about it on Twitter. We're at Tops1988. Thanks a lot. We'll see you next week.